I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello to the year 2024, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Happy New Year. It's a phrase we say reflexively when the calendar page turns. But let's take a minute here and think about it, because the joy of thinking is why this show exists. Ideas is a 54-minute opportunity for us, both the Ideas staff and you, our community of listeners, to reflect, to explore the present and the past, human history and culture, to think about how we got here. Together, we hear from insightful people from all over the world. But wow, there's a lot going on as we do. New conflicts out of control. Old divisions entrenched big economic and societal inequities, the climate crisis, misinformation and hate. So when we say Happy New Year these days, we may just say it hesitantly, with fingers crossed and shoulders tight. Some of us may not be able to say it at all. But if there's one thing you can take away from the program over its many decades of life, it's that in humanity, there is hope. There are innovations and solutions, discovery and wonder. There is, in other words, the capacity for human beings to change. No matter how bleak things may seem, there are always people actively thinking about ways to better see and understand, with suggestions on how to cope and gain clarity, how to counter the worst of humanity with its best. And in that reality we can definitely find optimism as the calendar flips to 2024. So here's to hope and change. Let's start off this new year by checking in with some contributors to ideas, producers and those they work with on our documentaries, interviews and features. They're going to give us a glimpse into what they're working on in the first few months of 2024. And in keeping with the annual New Year's levy tradition here at Ideas, each of them will close it out with a piece of music they've chosen. The first to join me, Ideas producer Chris Watzkow. Chris, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. I thought you were coming to the studio. What happened? I'm a very cautious person, and I have some sniffles and something bordering on a scratchy throat. And the test said no COVID, but, um, you know, this time of year, you don't want to mess around with that sort of thing. (laughs) No, you're right. Every time we do this show, I think maybe we'll be free of the long arm of COVID, but here we are. Yes, even if it's not actually here, (laughs) it's just kind of looming everywhere. It's true. So tell me what you're working on. The big project I'm working on is sort of a probing into the mysteries of existence. 
So that's a small topic. Nothing too complicated. No, eh? no. But we're we're not even looking at the philosophical or theological or any of that kind of dimension of it, but looking at the physical as possibly the source of answers to the big questions we might have. And so starting at the level of a cell, human cell, um, and then looking around inside, seeing how the different cell organelles like mitochondria, ribosomes, et cetera, how they operate, what they do, all these complicated and fascinating and incredibly sophisticated cell functions. And then we just keep on zooming in closer and closer to the molecular level, to the atomic level, to the subatomic level. And we keep zooming in until we can't zoom in any further. And we're more or less at the point of the irreducible fundamental parts of existence. And so we've got some interviews with eminent scientists to provide the narrative, the description, and then accompanying it is going to be this score, I guess you could call it a score, by a guy you might recall, uh, Aaron Collier. Oh, yeah. He was part of the National Arts Center's uh, Theater and Physics Symposium. That uh, Fascinating guy. a couple shows from. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a theater performer and sound designer and electronic composer. And so the two of us are working together to try to create this. Um, well, we can't do it visually, so we're trying to create a kind of audio journey into, yeah, the mysteries of existence. I, it sounds portentous, it's, <laughs> but it's, uh, I can't think of a better term for it. Chris, at the risk of, of, of being too meta, what was the genesis of this idea? Well, do you, have you heard of the uh, movie Fantastic Voyage? Yes. Yeah. So this uh, mid-60s sci-fi movie, best known for two things. One is it starred Raquel Welch. And the other thing is it took this uh, crew of surgeons and it put them into this kind of futuristic submarine shrunk it down to the size of a microbe and injected it into a human bloodstream. And so it's this journey through the body uh, that at the time was kind of spectacular because you'd see, you know, red blood cells streaming everywhere. The thing gets attacked by a white blood cell. The white blood cell is the bad guy in this one, aside from the double agent. There were a lot of Cold War overtones to this thing. But uh, so one day, our executive producer, Greg Kelly, uh, just says to me, kind of out of the blue, you know that movie, Fantastic Voyage? And I said, the science fiction movie starring Raquel Welch? Yeah. And he said, do you think we could do an audio version of that? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's radio. We can do anything we want. And so he kind of said, yeah, go to it. And then shortly after, I thought, I don't know how to do this. There's I don't know how to create an audio scape or anything like that. And, and then I fortunately remembered, oh, yeah, there's this guy in Halifax or just outside Halifax named Aaron Collier who's good at this sort of thing. And so off we went. That's great. But what is it that makes it interesting for you, Chris Wadskow? It's just fascinating on so many levels. Like there's, I've always had a lot of interest in, in science and especially the really big and the really small. So either the level of the cosmos or at the microscopic or even subatomic level. And I hardly know where to begin because once you start looking, it's just this myriad of incredible mind-blowing things that 
are going on beneath the surface. Uh, you think you look at humans as a whole, right? You look at people as a kind of self-contained whole, which we are in a sense. But when you start looking closer, there's all these different parts, 37 trillion different cells in a human body. Wow. And there's hundreds of thousands or millions of things in every one of those cells. Yeah. And so I did a little like back of the envelope calculation and we have, by my non-scientific estimate, 400 quintillion moving parts in our bodies. And so it's like a four followed by 20 zeros. I was going to ask, I don't know what a quintillion is. That's a lot of, it's it, a lot it, of things. It's a lot. So that's just an incredible amount of stuff that's all coordinated and all working together somehow in human bodies. So, and the closer you look, there's more and more stuff. But when you get right down to like the level of atoms and stuff like that, there's almost nothing, right? Like we are 99.9999999999% empty space. So we're all this stuff and all this stuff is almost nothing. Wow, that's mind blowing. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> like it, you, it's hard not to think of our lives, our our being as this massive paradox. Yeah, that somehow works and somehow makes sense. I was about to say, what do you want us to take away from this episode? But I think you just answered that question. Yeah, I I think it, and, and everybody I talked to, all the different scientists, they're all the same about mm-hmm. this, which is to say, like their minds are just continually being blown. So what mind-blowing music have you brought with you for us to listen to, to tee up this episode? Well, it's sort of uh, thematically apropos. It's the song, What is Life? by the reggae band Black Uhuru. From the song What is Life by Black Uhuru, inspired by a coming ideas episode about the biology of the human body from producer Chris Watzkow. Next up on the Ideas New Year's Levy, a first time freelance contributor to the program, Genesee Keevil. Genesee, it's so nice to have you on the line. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. So, where have we reached you today? I'm in Whitehorse in the Yukon. And I know that's part of the story that you're telling us. What are you bringing to us? What's the story about? I'm working on a piece about the salmon, which you might not immediately associate with the Yukon since we're not coastal here. But the Yukon River is actually home to the longest migration of Chinook on the planet. Wow. Close to half a million fish used to, yeah, they used to enter the Yukon River every year from the Bering Sea, and then they would travel some 3,200 kilometers upstream all the way across Alaska into the Yukon. You say used to. Well, yes, there are quite a few less now. It used to be, I mean, it was a very significant source of food for the First Nations. They used to gather along the shores of the Yukon at fish camps where they would catch a year's worth of this nutrient-rich food in just a few weeks, and they would hang all the salmon fillets to dry over wooden poles like crimson laundry. And the children there would learn to cut the fish, and elders told stories, and there was feasts and laughter and celebration. So it was, it was a very strong tradition. This fall, reporting on this story, I went to one of these fish camps, and I spent the day with members of the Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation. 
They had a crackling fire going and they had the wall tent set up, but the wooden poles for hanging the salmon fillets sat empty. As you were asking, salmon stocks have plummeted in the last few years, down 95% from historic levels. And do we know why? Yeah, well, there are a myriad of reasons what, with things that are happening that are impacting the salmon. Um, climate change is causing the Yukon River to heat up and salmon don't do well in warm water. There's effluent from mining leaching into the waterways. Hydroelectric dams interfere with migration and spawning. And there's been a resurgence of parasites that target the salmon. But the big, the elephant in the room is overfishing, especially in the ocean. And I guess, you know, that isn't that surprising, but the numbers are truly staggering. In the Pacific alone, commercial fisheries harvest more than 2 million tons of salmon and steelhead annually. Incredible. That's the equivalent weight of six Empire State buildings each year. Wow. What made you um, want to explore this story? Where was the beginning point for you? Uh, I actually used to guide long river trips in Ontario, Quebec. We'd be out for the full 40 days and travel 2,000 kilometers. And so when I moved to the Yukon 20 years ago, I started paddling here. And I remember how thrilling it was in the late summer to see the shadow of these huge salmon passing through the turquoise water under my canoe. Wow. It almost felt primordial, you know, that was such a... <laughs> and, and then... When I was working as a journalist, I started hearing how the salmon numbers were dropping, and I also began to notice less and less shadows appearing under my canoe. And then as I learned more about the salmon, I became amazed by how integral they are to the whole riparian ecosystem. I mean, they're a keystone species, and the disappearance affects not just us humans, but everything. They feed the bears, the wolves, the eagles, and then they drag the, these animals drag the carcasses into the forest where they rot and act as compost for the plants. They feed the berries, the trees. So they're ultimately in everything, too. Um, and for the First Nations people that depend on the salmon, like Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation, the loss of salmon is also a, a huge loss of identity. And it's a loss that Little Salmon Carmack's chief, Nicole Tom, refers to as a soul wound. A soul wound. Yeah, and a, and, a, and a very specific soul wound to the people who are directly affected. Tell me what you're hoping the rest of us, why the rest of us need to pay attention to this. I think we all need to be aware of what's happening in the ocean and sort of the staggering demand we're putting on salmon, how many salmon are being pulled out of the ocean to satiate our appetites. Um, I also, one thing I didn't realize when I started working the story was how commercial hatcheries in Russia and Japan and America are also releasing millions of salmon into international waters every year. And then these fish are competing with the wild stocks for food. And another thing, which I think we all sort of need to think about, I don't quite know how we mitigate it, but how incredibly challenging it is to try and protect wild species that cross international boundaries. Like these Chinook, which are born in the Yukon, and then they swim through Alaska and out into the open ocean to live out most of their life, if they make it. And then they return from these international waters back through Alaska into the Yukon to spawn seven years later. So... They've got these huge journeys, and if there's anything we can do, I mean, there are sort of these intergovernmental panels and things that are trying to help. But I think even awareness and thinking about that and putting pressure to support these species that don't recognize these boundaries. Well, I know I'm looking forward to hearing your your own impressions, given that you saw things one way and then they changed with time. But I'm still curious if you can give us a glimpse into what surprised you that you've learned so far as you've reported this story. Well, one of the most surprising things I first heard was how some Yukon First Nations have actually resorted to flying in frozen salmon in an attempt to keep their traditions alive because they're no longer able to catch the salmon in the river. Incredible. But it's really not the same. 
And, and there are fears now that bringing in the frozen salmon is further contributing to the problems in the ocean, you know, instead of helping to rectify it. So First Nations are trying to figure out here how to mitigate the situation and not cause more harm. One of the exciting things that's happening is there are some hatcheries, I think, that are starting here in the Yukon River. First Nations are starting them to try and sort of introduce salmon back to the, to the waterways. So there is a glimmer of hope. I look forward to hearing about that as well. Now, I know you've brought some music to leave with us that's connected to the story. What is it that you've brought with you? Yeah, the youth from Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation, which is where we went um, this fall, they actually wrote a song called Big River People, and Nui Jinan Creative Studios helped them write it in collaboration with some professional musicians and producers. And this song speaks to the importance of the land and water and all it sustains for this next generation. Genesee, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Nala, for having me. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. The land we walk on is so calming As I listen to the winds and the river The way we used to That was Big River People, a song by the young people of Little Carmack's First Nation, inspired by an upcoming episode about the fate of salmon in the Yukon River from freelance contributor Genesee Keevil. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 across Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America, on Sirius XM, in Australia, on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find ideas wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Every new year, we gather together ideas producers and contributors to share a bit about what they're working on and play a tune related to the theme. Next up, it's UBC Journalism Director and Ideas Contributor Kemal Al-Sulayli. Happy New Year, Kemal. Happy New Year, Nala. So great to have you back again for another year. I, I love working with ideas, especially my producer, Pauline Holdsworth. We, we make a good team. You really do make a great team, and you've got a great idea coming very soon to our airwaves. What are you working on? I'm working on a documentary on the life and works of Wilkie Collins, the 19th century uh, novelist famous for the sensation novel. I understand that your interest in him started long before your collaboration with Pauline. When did it really start? It's almost 35 years ago now. Uh, in 1990, I studied a PhD in English in Nottingham University, and he was my 
specialty. He was the author I chose to specialize in. I ended up doing several of his contemporaries in the sensation novel, but he was always the standout writer. And for almost 35 years now, um, I've revisited his work regularly. Whenever I'm in time of distress or feeling a bit low, I return to The Moonstone and The Woman in White and Basil. Uh, They just give me comfort and they're they're just such a thrill to read and they always take my mind off troubles. We've heard, I'm sure you've heard the same thing, how reading is probably the best kind of self-solace you can provide. I, What is it about his writing that soothes and comforts you in bad times? For one thing, I mean, there, there, there are thrillers or mystery novels, most of them, not all of them. Uh, so they have a very pulsating sort of rhythm that can take your mind off things. You kind of, you flip the page trying to find out, even though you've read it before, you flip the the page is trying to find out what happens next or how will this, oh, I, I forgot this is how this is resolved. Uh, there's there's one element that just completely takes your mind off the day-to-day. Um, the other is that how ahead of his time he is in, in many aspects, in, particularly at, around psychology and psychiatry. I mean, psychiatry was a, an emerging a form of uh, medicine at the time, and he explored the human mind like no other writer of of his period and and obviously with that uh, the troubles that sort of afflict uh, the the human mind you know whether it's mental mental breakdown or or just madness um and also he had a very sophisticated way of understanding crime that is not really that kind of uh, the very obvious um, the way we understand crime, but crime is a very socially determined process that it, that a lot of people that you wouldn't associate with actually engage in. Um, so he was able to kind of expose Victorian society's uh, flaws um, or, or, or at least uh, the things they tried to hide oh, and put all of that in this really digestible art form of the thriller or the detective novel. Very cool. Of course, we don't want to give away your entire episode, but I, and besides wanting our listeners perhaps to read some of his work, what's one takeaway you think that you're hoping listeners will will have after hearing the episode you're doing with Pauline? I want them to know that the moment we're in in history is not new, that, uh, that you know, that predecessors or whatever you want to call them in the 19th century experienced the same anxieties that we are experiencing now about the future and what the future may hold, the the technological advances, um, the fact that we live in larger and larger cities with newcomers and people coming and going. uh, All of these things were experienced by by Collins's contemporaries, uh, particularly when it referred to Victorian England. So there is there is a certain kind of comfort in knowing that what what we're experiencing now is nothing new and other, other other societies have survived and passed on the baton to the next generation so this is this is to me something that is very unique about Wilkie Collins's work but just so i'm clear when you say what we're going through now what are you referring to it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that the genre that he's associated with called sensation novel and uh, and something that uh, we, we make a point of uh, mentioning in the episode is is the fact that you know the, the social media and the bombardment of news is an attack on our nervous system and, and uh, the sense that like we react to it in a very uh, it affects the sense and sensations in, in, in our bodies and also the fact that we are living in a world of 
very sort of vast and fast technological changes that we're kind of almost losing the plot on, on what's happening. I mean, look at AI, for example. And I think in many ways, industrialization and the sort of the advance of colonization and, you know, smaller forms of technologies in the 19th century and advances in science, particularly, and medicine, um, have left a lot of you know, some Victorians uneasy with where the world is going. And I think at least I can only speak for myself. I, f- I feel the same about what's next. Where is AI going to take society, for example? So from this to the Queen of Sheba, we're really getting a glimpse into Kamal al-Salehli's intellectual <laughs> journey. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if I can link them. You have a very wide um, area of interest. I think that's what we could fairly say. Well, the Queen of Sheba came from my sort of background in Yemen. And this came from, uh, what, you know, and in another lifetime, I was an English PhD student. So it's kind of the connecting aspects of my past lives. Well, we can't wait to hear it. And I know that you've come with some music related to all of this that you'd like us to hear. So what have you brought with you? I think I would like to propose that we play um, a song from uh, an Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, version of The Woman in White. One of the main characters in The Woman in White is called Count Fosco. He's kind of larger-than-life Italian count who's a criminal mastermind. And in the show, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber gives him a really good song called You Can Get Away With Anything that I think I would like to play that out. You can get away with anything It all comes down to style You'll have a captive audience As long as you beguile Yes, you can have your cake and eat it No shame! That was from You Can Get Away With Anything from Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Woman in White inspired by a coming episode from contributor Kamal al-Sulayli. And now a glimpse into the mind and a coming episode from Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa. Nahid, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Nice sweatshirt. Thank you. I'm nothing if not a a team player in my CBC sweatshirt. (laughs) Big exploding pizza, CBC pizza. Um, It's good to have you here. I know you've got a bunch of episodes coming up, but this one, this one is special. Yeah, just in time for Valentine's Day. (laughs) I'm going to be looking at whether marriage still works. And of course, one of the challenges is, you know, there's there's heterosexual uh, marriages, there's same-sex marriages, and a lot of the anecdotal stuff says this is really a problem between men and women. I initially just pitched it as marriage and the modern woman, and then our tireless and uh, ever-sharp leader, Nikola Lukšić suggested that I do one on men as well. Does marriage work for men? So that'll be, that'll be in March, I hope. My next natural question will be, where'd you get that idea? But I'm actually kind of scared to ask you that. I've been married forever. And it's interesting because I think that there are a lot of pressures on everyone, not just on women. They're on everyone. But it seems like the domestic space has seen the least amount of progress for women in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of women are really just tired of, as they see it, carrying the full mental load of this type of partnership. Um, I'm trying not to start or restart the sort of the 1970s and 80s gender wars between men and women, but somehow I feel we've never really resolved it. So let's see what we hear. Yeah. So is this I mean, clearly, we all look to our own lives for some ideas, but is this something that's that's in the atmosphere? Is this something that friends and family are talking about? Do you think it comes up more depending on what how old we are and how long we've been around? 
Yeah, I think there's a particular kind of generational conversation. I think it also probably has something to do with like home culture and where you're coming from, what your parents' marriage was like. But it's interesting, you know, I've been married for 30 years now, and I have a lot of friends who are in the same kind of space as I am in terms of time. And a lot of us are in those transitional phases, right, where our kids are moving on and it's really just us and our spouses. And have we really sort of re-interrogated the, the sort of the division of labor and can we re-interrogate that and what does all of that mean? And then, of course, marriage is another place where all of our social and economic anxieties come to bear. So I think it's more than just about whether women are happy in marriage. I think it's a lot of different things. There's also a lot of change in the trends of marriage and younger people, too. For sure. And I think for a lot of the younger women that I've I've talked to, especially women who, you know, we we sort of categorize as millennials, I think for them also, there's a, it's, I think it's been around for me as well, that tension between domestic life and work life, uh, our ambitions as individuals, and then our, you know, our desires and our goals and our responsibilities to our families. But I think it's really come down to women who are, you know, maybe in their 40s now and, and late 30s, because they didn't really have, I don't think, a narrative that ever told them there was something different. Like we mm-hmm. may have sort of looked at our mother's generation and thought, oh, okay, well, they were carrying that full load. Maybe we felt a little bit freer because there was more space to have that conversation. Whereas for younger women, a lot of that is like, this is how it ought to be. It must be. And when it isn't, I think it creates a different kind of tension. Yeah. Are you going in with kind of a a position or a theory or a an ideal or my theory is really about that domestic piece that we haven't really revisited domestic labor and domestic life. And so we've encouraged women to have all kinds of ideas about the outside world and ambition and and the right to follow those ambitions. But those basic relationships in the home, especially once you have kids, haven't really been reconfigured in any meaningful way. That's the theory. I don't know if it's going to be supported. I may be very, very surprised. I might not be surprised at all. I don't know. We'll see. So who do you go to for answers on this? I would really like to keep this as widely generational as I can. I don't want to just talk to women like myself. I want to talk to, you know, single women, and I want to talk to married women, and I want to talk to women whose marriages didn't work out for a variety of different reasons. And I also want to go to the academics and the scholars. I don't want this to just be anecdotal. And it's entirely possible that our anecdotal lives are very different from what the data tells us. This is also a possibility. Okay. So... I can think of at least two or three songs that would be appropriate for an episode like this, but I know you've brought one with you. What have you chosen? We're going to listen to Mitski, Me and My Husband. <sighs> I steal a few breaths from the world for a minute. Me and My Husband by Mitski. And last but not least, a producer whose voice you may recognize both from his own work and from his collaborations with Ideas senior producer Nikola Lukšić. Tom Howell. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! It's so great to have you here in person. Thanks. Where's Nikola? Where's Nikola? Oh, because usually are... we do it together because we're doing <laughs> yeah. Ideas from the Trenches. Yes. Nikola's going off around the world. I'm left on my own, to my own devices. What are you up to on your own solo? 
oh, uh, all kinds of things. I got a thing about truckers, and I got a thing about the most famous Canadian poet, Émile Nelligan. Nelligan. The canonical Quebecois poet of the late 1800s who shot to fame. Well, I didn't really even shoot to that much fame in his lifetime. Shot to fame after his lifetime with three years of poetry between the ages of 16 and 19 before he was committed to a, an asylum for the rest of his days. And uh, he is a figure of great renown in Quebec, and everyone has to learn his poetry in high school and so on and so forth. And I had never run into his name. Well, I was wondering how a Tom Howell, a Tom Howell. An everyman, if you will. Yes. Specifically me. If you did not Uh, grow up in Quebec, which I believe you did not. No, no, from England. See, in England, if someone's the most famous poet in the country, you, you know about them. This concept of Canada having this apparently, you know, best poet ever foundational figure and... No one's mm-hmm. heard of him. Seems um, seems a little odd. So you're going to help undo that? Well, for my Anglo friends, yes. Yeah. I um, I saw a, a copy of this book of the collected Emile Nelligan outside a, in a window display, I guess, of a bookstore in Montreal and picked mm-hmm. it up and started walking through the streets. And, you know, Montreal's already a romantic setting. And then uh, it was this was in the fall and I was reading uh, and this guy's poems are all about like, October and aren't pianos sad and the violin that's broken and all these sort of very rich, almost overblown topics that were on the mind of this teenage guy who uh, many call a genius. And uh, so I was fascinated to have not come across him before. And then his story is so rich. People have made, well, I was about to say people have made operas of him, but really there's one Mm. opera. But not bad. I mean, most Canadian of us have one? zero. Yeah. 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 A Canadian opera uh, penned by Michel Tremblay and uh, André Gagnon is the musician half of it. And, uh, and, that, and it was remounted a couple of years ago. Anyway, all to say, uh, there's a statue of him in a couple of cities. There's Amazing. schools named after him. Wow. This person needs to be known. He needs we, to be known. We must not persist in these two solitudes or they're going to go separate again. That's a fitting mission for someone who's kind of the unofficial poetry correspondent for ideas. Yeah, I've usually tried to grab the job of unofficial poetry correspondent for any show I've been working on. And uh, there's really not that much competition. So uh, There's actually going to be a fair amount of poetry on the show this year. Oh, good. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't. Um, But I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear. I'll try to tune in. Okay. So if I know, of course, we don't want to give away the entire show. And the fact that he's unknown is interesting enough. We all need to learn about him. What most surprised you as you've begun to explore the life of Emil Nelligan? surprised. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing's a surprise. Yeah. The, uh, he's a fascinating character. He was an Irish dad. That's the Nelligan part. And mom from um, Gaspésie. But they lived in Montreal. Okay. And they lived near Square Saint-Louis, which if you've gone to Montreal, you know, is a very sort of beautiful yes. European kind of location in the downtown. And uh, everything's just so romantic and foundational. Mm. And, and um, you know what it is? It's that he looks too much like the cliche of a kind of really romantic era poet or a Labo M kind and of so figure. young. He was very young and he, well, he, he got to be old, but no one talks about him after, after he was institutionalized, unfortunately. But he, uh, you know, he looked sort of like Beethoven. He looked like a young Beethoven. And so for, especially probably for men, we might speculate, but uh, this figure of the young poet, so full of potential, whose potential was cut short yeah. uh, and his great hair just made him look like he must be a genius, you know. It's such a compelling narrative for many people and has appealed over the years, uh, including to some Anglos. When I say no one's heard of him, I'm really speaking of my own social group. Right. Um, there are translators and I've met a couple of the most recent translators who 
have sort of plied this themselves to this mission of nelliganizing Anglo-Canada. Um, and uh, and it's fascinating, actually, to read all the different translations that people have done. Um, you can go all, all kinds of directions with him, very passionate, very obsessed with his own neurosis, uh, or you can translate him through the lens of, he was a real formalist. He wrote sonnets, and he wrote rondelles, and a uh, very beautiful kind of old-fashioned poetry. Beautiful. Um, a figure that, you know, we should know these people. I mean, I agree. not just as homework, but as uh, it, it enriches the landscape to know that these crazy stories happen. And the fact that when he went to his institution, his mom only visited him once. His dad never visited him. And he lived to be 60, from the age of 19 to 60. That's very shut tragic. Up. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't mean shut up. I meant he was shut up. Right, right. Well, I'm looking forward to enriching our landscape, but I am curious <laughs> if you could... Just to, to tease this, yeah. what's your physical starting point in this in this journey that you're taking us on with Emile Nelikon? It'll be through the lens, I think, of his most famous poem, which is called Soir d'hiver, The Winter's Evening. And there's so many translations of this poem. And there's also like stand-up comics who have done parodies of it. And it's really kind of set in downtown Montreal in winter. And I think because this is going to be a January show, it, it should be uh, put there. And we'll just get to the We'll get into why uh, the phrase "Ah, comme la neige a neige" is so uh, so widely known in Quebec, and why we should be into that line. And a broken violin, romance of wine. You know, there's just so many images. It might be more imagistic than narrative. Okay, we we'll welcome see. that. We'll see. Yeah. I look forward to it. <laughs> You've brought a piece of music that kind of speaks to this piece. What have you brought for us to listen to? One of the musical interpretations of. Nelligan's poetry. This one doesn't have any words in it. It's just an instrumental from the Nelligan opera by André Gagnon. And this is, in fact, André himself um, playing it on the piano. That was André Gagnon playing a piece from an opera about the poet Émile Nelligan, inspired by a coming documentary from Ideas producer Tom Howell. So that's a glimpse into some of the episodes that we have in store for you on Ideas in the opening months of this new year. I hope you'll find time to listen. I'm going to leave you with one last song myself. It takes us right back to the beginning of this program, to the idea that in humanity there is hope. So as the calendar flips to 2024, here's Bob Mould and See a Little Light. You're listening to Bob Mould's song, See a Little Light. And that's it for the 2024 edition of Ideas New Year's Levy. This episode was produced by Nicola Lukšić with help from Lisa Godfrey. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.